So our Bible reading this morning is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. You'll find that on page 1170 of the Church Bibles. 1170. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow... I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just for when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone Because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, pray for us as we start. Dear Lord, we pray that uh, by your spirit you enable us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive your word this morning. Amen. You will have probably noticed, uh, if you've been coming to service over the last few weeks, that uh, pretty much all of this letter that Paul writes, and I know that some of you won't have been because this is your first time, but you'll see as we go through, that pretty much all of this letter to the Galatians is is addressing one issue. 
And the issue is that the Galatians, having come to faith in Christ Jesus, are now being persuaded by others to slip back into trying to live under the law. Turning to a different gospel, actually, is what Paul says in chapter 1. So he repeatedly, through this book, he's contrasting what it is to live in Christ as against what it is to live under the law. Paul is not in a position, as we would be, to ping off an email to the Galatians and straighten them out, so he writes them a letter. And it's not an easy task to write a letter in those days, as it would be now. You've got to really want to do it. Uh, So you may ask yourself, having made this point several times, albeit from different angles, why he continues to keep making it. Well, in this first part of chapter 4, Uh, I think we begin to see why Paul wants to make sure that the Galatians church gets the point. Um, I was um, digging through some old stuff and I discovered this letter that was from my mum to my grandfather. Sorry, it would be my mother. She would prefer me to say my mother. And uh, and it was stated the 30th of August 1949. And... uh, uh, just before you start working that out, that was before I was born. Okay. Um, but as I looked at it, I thought, you know, this is the thought. What, what if this letter, my mum always, mother, always um, wanted me one day to pick it up and read it? Well, seeing as God has gone to such a lot of trouble and great lengths to make sure that you and I now have this letter in our hands, it must be that God intends us to get the point that he, Paul is making to the Galatians. So what I want to do is look at this passage, asking ourselves three questions. What is it that is upsetting Paul so much? Number one. Two, why does Paul describe living under the law as slavery? And three, what is our freedom in Christ? So let's look at those in turn then. First of all, what is it that is upsetting Paul so much? You'll see if you're looking at the, the Bible there that um, just before verse 8, it says uh, a little heading there, Paul's concern for the Galatians. Well, concern doesn't come close. Verse 11, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Verse 12, I plead with you. Verse 20, how I wish I could be with you because I am perplexed about you. And to top it, verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. His heart aches for them, doesn't it? He fears for them, for their salvation. When he had visited them, which is uh, in verses 12 to 16, and preached the gospel to them, they had welcomed him with open arms. And despite the fact that he had an illness, which it would appear was bad enough to make it a trial for them to even have him with them, still they would do anything for him. He says they received him as if he were Christ Jesus himself, which is an astonishing thing for him to say. You can feel the love that Paul has then for these people who have become, or rather he said he had become one with them, for I became like you. They had received the gospel and they had believed, received the Holy Spirit. Some may view Paul as being something of an intellectual, all head and no heart. 
But these verses show a different Paul, his tenderness towards this young church. However, some false teachers have persuaded them that they needed something more than just the gospel message. They wanted these Galatians uh, to win them over into thinking like they were, flattering them, trying to alienate them from Paul and from the message, so that when Paul challenges them, he sounds to them like the enemy. Have I become, this is verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Maybe you've felt that some pain in your life too, when someone you really love has been pulled away from you by others who have some sort of different agenda. Suddenly they seem distant from you. But for Paul, that's not the main point, in fact. What he yearns is to see them, as he says in verse 20, see rather Christ formed in them. What he is fearful of is that they will be pulled away from Christ and not from him and into putting their trust in something else. Now I think it's worth letting us, or us letting the, the, the letter challenge us in that respect. Is there something or someone in our lives that is driving a wedge between us and following Christ, in trusting in him? When we look at scripture and hear it expounded, does it become the enemy for telling us the truth? The Bible is often very challenging, isn't it? But we should not react by rejecting the truth simply because it's uncomfortable. So then, what is upsetting Paul so much is the Galatians, whom he loves, having received the gospel with joy, now being persuaded to go back to something else. So then, my second point. That's still my first, isn't it? Why does Paul describe living under the law as slavery? So we're now going to skip back to the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, to look at that uh, a little closely. What is Paul saying their position is under the law? That's trying to keep the Jewish law and traditions. Before Christ came, Paul says, they were like heirs who were under age. That's children. So, okay, you could argue that they were heirs to the promise that God had made through Abraham. But while they were still trying to keep the law, uh, they didn't have the blessing, did they? Potentially, it was all theirs, but in experience, they may as well be slaves. In reality, they have no freedom. They're subject to all the restrictions, all the guardians, none of the benefits. Slaves to the principle of the world. When I was a teenager, I had this friend who owned a farm, looked a lot like this one. And he actually owned the farm. He was a teenager as well. But he may as well not have, because it wasn't his until he came of age. So he worked on the farm, uh, probably didn't get paid. Uh, and he, the farm was his, but it was no benefits. He was no better off than somebody who just worked there as a farm labourer. So it is, as we are, are trying to earn our salvation by keeping the law, we may as well be as slaves, because we have none of the freedom. So he asks them in verse 9, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? 
Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? He fears for them because they are moving away from freedom to slavery. In verse 10, Paul talks about them observing special days and months and seasons and years, adhering to certain rules and observances, but it's a dreary routine of rules and regulations becoming formal, like a religion that's outside of yourself, losing the joyful communion of children with their father. And he says, verse 15, what has happened to all your joy? The law is not a bad thing, but it doesn't have the power to save or to bless you. What it does have is the ability to point you to Christ. It's a bit like this. Is, this is an illustration I come with. I hope it helps you. It's a little like when you put your nicely white sheets out on the line on a sunny winter's day, and you're thinking how white they look, and then it snows, and then you find out what true white looks like. That's what the law does to us, shows us up. But you may be sitting there and thinking, well, if this letter is to us, then are we, you know, anybody we know, are we tempted to go and put ourselves under the Jewish law? I don't think we are, we think. I don't. Do we? Well, I want to say two things. It's interesting, isn't it? All of us, even if we reject God and try and justify ourselves, we do it by some law, even if it's a law that we wrote ourselves. I try to be a good person. I feed the cat, help old ladies across the road, or we justify ourselves by other efforts, like to save the planet, reducing our carbon footprint, putting out the recycling, giving to the Salvation Army at Christmas. I guess they're all good things, aren't they? But are they good enough? Because if you ask somebody, are you a good person? I doubt that many would say they were. And if they did, would you believe them? We, this is a, a, a modern way of putting it that my son told me about. We try to be the best version of me. What does that ever mean? I mean, that's a bit unsatisfactory. If you went into a supermarket, there's a passage, uh, sorry, a package there. And it says, this is not very good, but it's the best we could come up with. <laughs> it's not satisfactory, is it? And if we are honest, even by our own standards, we fail. And before that is even we apply God's standards. But there's a second thing about this. Because I think this letter challenges us who are in the church with regard to what we are putting our trust in. You see, I think we're far too easily tempted to justify ourselves, uh, put the emphasis on the good things that which we do. Somehow they're going to win us some sort of credit. We too have this tendency, I think, to slip back to self-justification. My sister was sitting with a bunch of people in a church group talking about heaven. And one person got a little exasperated with everybody and said... I really don't like the way you Christians are all trying to do good things to get into heaven. How is it that that person completely misunderstood the Christian faith and what it's about? That she is thinking that being under the law is Christianity when it's the opposite. I think Mike touched on this a few weeks back. How is it that we, the church, have somehow 
got people to believe that doing good things to, is the way to earn your way into heaven. Is it too harsh to put it that way? I don't know. But when we see that churches are often concentrating on things which are not the gospel and how they come across on the media, you do wonder sometimes. It does look like a lot of rules and rituals. So Paul is reminding them that living under the law is not freedom. It is slavery. So here then is my final and third point. What is our freedom in Christ? Well, Paul puts it really wonderfully here, I think, in verse 4 we are now. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We were in slavery until the time had fully come or in the fullness of time. And I just want us to consider that for a moment uh, from a historical uh, point of view. It was a time when the Romans had conquered the known inhabited world, subdued it, built roads that would be better than any roads for centuries afterwards, where legions were stationed to guard those roads and to protect the traveller, where the Greek language and culture had brought a cohesion to society, where the old mythical gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people. And hearts and minds were hungry for a religion that was real, satisfying. John Stott reminds us the law of Moses has done its work of preparing for Christ, teaching them, but also holding them in a sort of prison. So they longed ardently for the freedom that Christ would bring. So it was at that time that God sent his son to redeem us and to give himself up for us. Verse 5, to adopt us as sons. Not only then to rescue us from the slavery of sin, but to adopt us as sons. And in these verses, Paul spells out how Jesus was perfectly qualified to do just that. He was a son of God, but born of a woman, so human as well as divine, the only God-man. He was born of a Jewish mother into the Jewish nation, so therefore subject to the Jewish law, a law which he then submitted to, met the requirements, succeeded where all others, before or after, have failed. He was uniquely qualified to be man's redeemer. You are not going to find another. If he had not been a man, he could not have redeemed a man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed the unrighteous. If he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed us for God, to make us sons of God. But God does not leave it at that. Verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit that calls out, Abba, Father. He also says something similar in Romans 8. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies that our, with our spirit that we are God's children. He sent his Son that we might have the status of sons and sent the Spirit that we might experience it. Not in some sort of dramatic way, but in the quiet inward witness of the Spirit as we pray. What a blessing, what a freedom that is. For those who put their trust in him now, salvation is not hanging in the balance depending on whether you are slaves to obedience to the letter of the law or whether you think you are good enough. But it rests entirely on the finished work of Christ. Formerly you did not know God, says Paul in verse 9. Jesus says, uh, but now you do know God. And Jesus says in John 17, Now this is eternal life that you know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know him is eternal life. So, that then is why Paul keeps repeating this point. The folly of the Galatians is that they seem to be saying they would prefer to be slaves. In the parable of the prodigal son, which you may know, the son uh, sins, he runs away, he takes the money, deserts his father, and then makes a mess of his life. He hurts his father, but he comes back to him, and on returning, he says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It is one thing to say you do not deserve it, as the prodigal son did. It is quite another to say you don't desire it. We need to keep reminding ourselves that we are or what we are in Christ. Keep meeting together to encourage and remind each other. To keep looking to the scriptures to teach and challenge us about it. And keep praying to our Father who loves us through the Spirit whom he sent us. I pray you may know or you may all know him and the blessing and freedom he brings. Amen.